Welcome to the New Freedom Church podcast. This podcast will help you grow deeper in your faith through weekly 30-minute talks. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you get each new episode as it's released. Now sit back and relax as God speaks to you through this message. What does time matter? Time is our greatest commodity because time is limited. Time is precious. You know, if it weren't for time, there would not be any real purpose for any of the sporting events that we love to attend and cheer on our favorite teams. I mean, if the time clock never expired and the game just went on and on and on, then what purpose would it be? The other team's going to get the ball again. There's going to be another opportunity to score, and so things will always get balanced out. Time is vital. And as we assess our own time, as we assess the time in which we live, as we look at the days around us and the moments that slip into weeks that turn into months and then years, and we look back, we say, wow, how time has passed so quickly. You know, regarding the Word of God, I think it's impossible for any serious student of the Bible to read through the Old and New Testaments without realizing that it is pointing to something beyond just this natural life. Yes, there are a lot of great advices and wisdom sayings and things that we can apply to our our common everyday life, but the scriptures continue to point to something else, to point to something that is a culminating event that must take place. Often, this is called in the scriptures the day of the Lord, or we know it as the return of Christ. It is the end of human history as we know it. Now, there are lots of ideas and theories surrounding eschatology. That's a big word that just simply means the study of the last things. And mostly in Western Christian circles, there are three schools of thought that generally agree on some of those theological ideas, but then they are widely diverse in others. So with this question in mind, what time is it? What I want us to do today is I want us to shelve the three and a half to seven years of of where there are lots of of different theories or ideas. I want us to just set that aside for a minute because if if you uh, would like to look at pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, no-trib, you can find somebody who has written about that that probably will be to your liking. But I want us to look at the most broad and most biblically consensus arguments or desire to know the time that we can find in the Bible. Let's look at what the church historically and today actually agrees on, and it is this, that Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming. You can say that with me. Jesus is coming again. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. I love the writings of Paul. In fact, there are probably four authorities that we can look at to what time is it. There are four authorities, and I want us uh, to look at the first three, and then we'll look at the last one. Uh, The first three are Peter, Paul, and who said Mary? No. (laughs) She didn't write anything. She, She didn't write anything about this time. They didn't sing about it either. Peter, Paul, and Jesus tell us about the end. For some of you that are less than 30 years old, you get that one later. You ask somebody else about that question. Peter, Paul, and Jesus are the first three primary witnesses and what I would say experts on this timing issue. Time. What is time? And then we can look at the Apostle John just a little bit later. But let's look at first the Apostle 
Paul and see what he said regarding this to the Corinthians. He said, now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition. Who were they written for? Say our admonition. They're written for us. They happened to them, but they're written for us upon whom the ends of the ages, it didn't say the end of human history, but the ends of the ages have come. Well, what things? What things is Paul talking about? He's talking about the Exodus. He's talking about the tabernacle of Moses, the things that were written in the Old Testament, the wilderness wanderings, the, the great deliverance that we see that God did time and time again through Israel. And so what Paul is saying was all of those things happened for our admonition. It's to teach us something. We can look back as we look forward. We can see from the past what God has done and established our pathway for now. So who was it written for? Well, in the contemporary audience that Paul was speaking to, it was first century Christians. That's who, who the us for our admonition was written to. But by extension, as followers of Jesus grafted into the vine, you and I have become part of this great thing called the family of God. And so it was written for our admonition as well. The end of what? What was he talking about the end? He says the end of the ages had already come upon them. Well, this was an end of the old sacrificial system, the end of the law, the end of the temple type of worship. And someday this will mean the end of the age of grace wherein we now live. And it says, all of this has already come. Some, some authors think that the Corinthians was written uh, after 70 AD. We can talk about that a little bit more later. But the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So there was a definite end of something that took place in 70 AD. Now look at uh, 1 Chronicles 12 and 32, because this kind of answers the next question, what now? If all these things were happening and they were done already, then what now? Well, it says that the sons of Issachar had understanding of the times. Somebody say times. That means the times past. That means the times that they live in and the times which were yet to be. They had an understanding. They were learned men. They had an understanding of the times and they knew what Israel ought to do. They knew what their nation was called by God to do. They knew what God had put in their heart to walk out and to exercise the function that they were called to. And I get this question a lot. Are we in the last days? Are we in the last days? Now, I think so. It seems like it. And in some ways, I hope so. And when people ask, are we in the last days, I really have to say, I don't exactly and specifically know, but I do know this, that you and I are in our last days. Even if you get 70, or by grace, the, the Psalms say, by 80 years a span of life. Some live beyond that. Even if you get 100 years on this earth, are you halfway through those? Are you a third of the way through those? Are you two-thirds of the way? Whether we are in the last biblical days or not, you are in your last days. And so there are some things that you and I need to observe. There are some things that we should take notice of. There are some things that we can operate in right now in our lives knowing that we are in these last days the scriptures were talking about uh, specifically the end of judaic sacrificial law Th this was two thousand years ago that the temple was destroyed and something very important ended and that was 
the Judaic system of worship, the, the sacramental type of, of ceremonial worship. We are now and have been living in a time of grace. It is a time of waiting, it is a time of watching, and it is a time of working. There are some things that we can observe and do so that we would be better poised when the future comes knocking at our door. The kingdom of God is present now as a foretaste of things yet to come. The kingdom of God belongs to the present, and it's, uh, it belongs to the future, and it's drawn into the present in the ways in which we operate in the spirit of Christ. And every generation, hear me, every generation since the first century have made a case while Jesus would return in their day. Every generation has made some type of analysis why that Jesus will return in their lifetime. And I think that that is a healthy example for us to follow. I think that we should have an anticipation that Jesus could come at any moment. But I will say this, we seem to live in a very unique time. We seem to live in a very unique season. And I would say that his return is closer now than it ever has been. Would you agree? If we just look at some historical facts from our recent history. In the year 1970, there was an estimated 1.2 billion Christians on the earth. Now fast forward to the year 2017 when another survey was taken and there was then estimated 2.6 billion Christians on the earth. Can you see that there is this intensification? There is this increasing of a expectancy. There is something that has happened evangelically that gets people out and witnessing their faith. Why is that? Because as the day draws nearer, we have an urgency. We have a desire to see everyone come to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is God's will that no one should perish but that all should come to repentance. So what is happening? God is reaping this great harvest, and we're going to continue to see this great harvest being reaped throughout the ages. It was uh, looked at by modern uh, history teacher David Barton. He is a a Christian historian, and what he uh, looked at was over the last couple hundred years, the moves of God. And he looked at the, the second great awakening in America, and here's what he concluded, that from about 1825 to the year 1900, the, the, the second great awakening, there was such an incoming of souls into the kingdom, there was such a, a revival that was underway that we look back now with nostalgia of all the great things that happened from 1825 to 1900. But did you know that people living in that moment, people living through that season, they could have lived, you could have lived 75 years from being born 1825, died in 1900. You could have lived 75 years on this earth and have been experiencing the second great awakening, one of the greatest revivals ever in modern history and not even realize that you were in revival. Because as you look back and you see some of the things that happened, yeah, there's wonderful things taking place, but there's also uh, horrible, like civil war took place during that season. We can always look at a time or a season and see the things that are great and see the things that are bad. It's, it's like the tale of two cities. It was the worst of times and it was the best of times. And if we look at our own lives, we can probably identify some things that, yeah, we can see that dichotomy working even in our own lives. And many people will say something like this. They'll say, Pastor, 
Just look at how bad the world is. Surely Jesus is coming soon, to which I would gladly agree. But then I wonder this. At what time in history were things a whole lot better? The first century? Well, let's go back to the first century for just a minute. Let's take a a trip down memory lane and let's look at our history and see that things were pretty bad in Jesus' day too. Just after his resurrection and the, the early church, they suffered such persecution that they would take Christians, they would tar and feather them, they would put them on a pole and light them on fire. That sounds like pretty bad time to be a Christian to me. Going into a Colosseum and taking a Christian and putting them loose with a, a thousands of spectators and letting the wild animals and beasts come out and tear them apart. That is what we find that is so great about the first century. Maybe we, we fast forward a little, little time. We get to the 1100s and we see all the, the great things happening in the 1100s. But then we realize, oh, wait a minute, the Crusades happened in the 1100s. And that wasn't such a golden era after all because people were forced to convert to faith. They were told either you convert or you die. Now, that's not the way that we get conversions, is it, right? That's how they did it in the Middle Ages. Maybe we go to the 1500s and we say, well, the Reformation, that was a wonderful time for church history. We finally broke away from the tyranny of the Roman Catholic Church and all the purgatory and the the, the rites and the rituals and all the things that they were extorting money for. But you look at all of the other circumstances around that time you find out that they weren't the greatest days maybe we look at at something like the 1800s we romanticize days of the past and and these days are so much worse but can I tell you that in the 1800s you could die from a bug bite because you didn't have antibiotics to treat it or just a common scrape we look at things like the 1920s oh they they, those were the golden years right the the gilded age yet at the end was 1929, the great stock market crash and Great Depression throughout the 30s. Maybe you go into the 1950s and you say, now, that was a time. The greatest generation, that's what they're called. The greatest generation, that was the golden era. Boy, things are so much worse now. But then we realize that as we look back at our history, there was this constant fear because this Cold War was a standoff of mutually assured destruction that at any time we'd have to take shelter because the nuclear bomb, the big one, was coming. Or maybe we just look forward and we say, you know what? We romanticize over the 2000s. They were such wonderful years. Technology was just ramping up. You can kind of get to the early 2000s. You can stand and look back and remember what it was like not to have all that cellular device and all the technology. And then you can look forward and say, oh, the great breakthroughs of technology. But then you say, yeah, but there was terrorism breaking into the world scene, this fear that was gripping people's hearts. And so my point is this, the world system always has been and always will be hard because it is broken. And so looking at our days and saying, oh, pastor, the days are so bad. I can look back at any era, any generation and say that the days were bad. But today, in some ways, we have it better than prior generations. We have medical breakthroughs and we have education and travel, communication like we've never had before. We have cleaner food and water than we'd ever, more, more plentiful than we'd ever had in all the earth. So what am I saying? We live in a very unique time. We live in a time and in an age that no other human has ever been able to live in this span of about 75 years that we have now been experiencing. We live in a time that God has given us to steward over, something very special to steward over. In Matthew chapter 19, we've been, we've been studying the book of Matthew 
And I want us to conclude the study of the book of Matthew today, and then next week we're going to jump in to the book of Luke. We're going to be camping out there for just a little while. But in Matthew chapter 19, I want to read to you a passage that, that Jesus, uh, kind of some admonition he gave to his disciples. I didn't give you guys this in the media. You just have to follow me here. But it says that uh, Peter answered him and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Peter's saying, Hey, Jesus, you know, we've given up a whole lot to follow you. What do we get in return for it? Here's what Jesus said. Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, in the restoration, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his throne in glory, you will have followed me. You who, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters, father, mother, wife, or children or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. That word restoration there is in the Greek, palingenesia, which means Genesis again. And here's what Jesus was referring to. This broken world, this system of sacrifice that you have to give up things in your life in order to get something better, in order to, to walk the, the Christian path that's going to be one of trials and tribulation, Jesus said you should expect that. But he's giving Peter this hope and by extension giving it to us that Yes, this world is broken. Yes, this world is flawed. Yes, there are faulty things that are happening. Yes, there are, are evil empires and world systems that are rising and falling all of the time. But he said, when we really get to the place of the restoration, there is coming a time of restoration. And the apostle Peter picks it up in Acts and he says that there was, is coming a time of refreshing for restoration, it's repentance. And then we get to Revelation and he says, behold, I make all things new. So this is really the crux of where we are heading as a people is that we know that there is coming a day and it's not right now but there is coming a day when God will set all things right when God will settle all scores when he will bring it all to bear and he will make sure that everyone who has suffered wrongly everyone who has said yes to the cause of Christ will receive their inheritance and receive their reward Jesus is coming again but now we get to Matthew chapter 24 I'm going to read 14 verses here because this is the, the context of the disciples asking Jesus, what time is it? And what is the time that we're living in? And here's what Jesus says. Verse 1, then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. Look at the location he was at. Departed from the temple and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. So they are geographically on the Mount of Olives now because he left the temple and he would, he would teach by day in the temple. But then he would go by night to the Mount of Olives overlooking the temple and that great complex in the city of Jerusalem and he would teach his disciples. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Talking about the temple. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all of these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. And all of these are just the beginning of sorrows. Now, we could take this verse right here and we can look at our contemporary world and we can see parallels working in tandem right here, very real with the word of God. Verse nine, 
Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will be offended. Do you think we live in a time of great offense? Huh. I mean, you can't even state a moderate position in our culture without someone calling you a sellout. <laughs> you can't state a, a position on this side or that side. People are offended all of the time. This offense is so high. They will betray one another and they'll hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end, say that with me, he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. And then the end will come. One of the greatest things about our generation and our time of living is also one of the biggest Achilles heel, and that is our communication abilities. We are now, we have the ability to communicate like we've never had before. You, you now have a device in your pocket that is a translator to any language just about known to man. You go anywhere and you can speak into your phone a sentence and it'll, t- it'll put it back to you in a whole other language for, for you to be able to travel and communicate. And the gospel message is getting out at, at a, a pace faster than we can even imagine. But there was something about this text that bothered one of the greatest theologians of our day. One of the, one of, and I wouldn't even say a theologian, I would say one of the greatest writers of our day. Many uh, uh, evangelicals tout how wonderful the writings of C.S. Lewis was. Anybody not heard of C.S. Lewis? Don't raise your hand. Okay, don't raise your hand. C.S. Lewis was one of the greatest literary masterminds of an entire era, entire generation. Yet you can find in his writing something that's kind of been buried about this text. And he said of this text, of this one verse, C.S. Lewis said that it is the greatest embarrassment of Christianity, perhaps even a flaw. What? The word of God being flawed? What was he saying? Is that it appears as though Jesus gives this time statement that he's coming back and he talks about a generation. He says this generation. He didn't say that generation. He said this generation. So the contemporary audience would have understood, that's me. The disciples are asking, when's this going to happen? He talks about all these stones being thrown down. And in 70 AD, that's exactly what happened. That the Gentiles came and they overtook, the Romans overtook the city of Jerusalem. And for the next three years, they destroyed the temple so much to the point where they plowed over the stones and every stone was torn down, just exactly like Jesus prophesied. But C.S. Lewis said, if we look around and we wonder, where is this coming? He hasn't come back yet. What happened? It's an embarrassment. But he wasn't doing this as a disdain to the scriptures. What he's saying is, if Jesus' words weren't true, that's an embarrassment. But here's what I want to submit to you. There was a very real fulfillment of this scripture in 70 AD, just like Jesus said. But that doesn't mean that it's the only fulfillment that will ever happen of that scripture. There are double fulfillments of scripture all the time. Has anybody ever heard of history repeating itself? Don't we look back and we see, well, that's just exactly like your grandpa used to do. That's just exactly like that kingdom uh, set up. That's exactly like, so we see things having a double fulfillment. Well, prove it to me, preacher. Okay, okay, let me, I'm glad you asked. Jesus gave reference to certain Old Testament archetypes and true stories. 
Now, some would say that, that Jonah and the fish, it's not really a whale, but Jonah and the fish is just a hyperbole, it's just a story. But Jesus dignified the story of Jonah by likening the story of Jonah and that fish being swallowed for three days and spit back out on the shore like his death, burial, and resurrection. You see a double fulfillment in Jonah in how that Jesus went into the, the, to the belly of the earth for three days and he was resurrected. And so Jesus gives a double fulfillment of how, yes, it did happen in Jonah's day and then Nineveh, just like it said, but then Jesus gives another archetype or a, a parable true story. First it was a story and then it actually happened when he rose on the third day. Noah, he gave another example of Noah. And he talks about in his own ministry how that there is a parallel between the days of Noah and the days of the coming of the Son of Man and even in his own contemporary day. He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and how that yes, things happened in that day, but things were going to recreate. They were going to happen again. And so we see this principle of double fulfillment, multiple fulfillment in the word of God. So when they're asking him about the end of something, yes, there was a very real end of an age, but another one began the age of grace, the end of the Judaic law, the sacrificial system. You know that for 2000 years, there has been no temple in Jerusalem to sacrifice at. They haven't rebuilt it. Now, I don't doubt for a moment that there are those that want to rebuild it that there may be a precipitation of those who go and set up a tent or something and so that they can reinstitute that Old Testament worship type. But that is not what God has ever wanted his people to do again because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, the spotless lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. We are never going to have to offer animals again. We have the perfect sacrifice in Jesus. Amen. Now, maybe that will be all part of the events yet to unfold. I don't doubt that for one moment. But there are some things that you and I can observe from Matthew chapter 24 and things we should observe. And number one is that we should be watching. Jesus' return should have a preparation in us. It should keep things on our radar. We should want to have that on our radar. There's a, a story about a, a young boy about nine years old that really wanted this new watch from his dad and he, he was just pestering his dad about this watch and all he wanted to talk about were all the functions and the features of this watch and finally his dad got so upset with him, he got so tired of hearing it, he said, I don't wanna hear another thing about that watch or you're never gonna get it. And the boy wanted to observe that and not really you know, make his dad so over the edge that he never gets the watch. He, he was thinking about a way, how can I keep this on my dad's radar without disobeying him? Well, at dinner time, the boy gets called upon to pray for dinner. And he had this clever idea. He had just been reading the scriptures and he prayed this prayer out of Matthew 26. It says, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch. We should be watchful and we should keep things on our radar because they're on God's radar. The, the return of Jesus should keep us ready on the precipice of what it is that we are to walk circumspectly in this life. First Thessalonians 5 and 1 says, but concerning the times, what time is it? Concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, 
so that the day should overtake you as a thief. So we, as the people of God, have the obligation and have the privilege of being ready, of being watchful, of keeping it on our radar that today might be the day, that this could be the moment. Our lives being laid bare before God every single day, keeping ourselves ready. I like what Chris Hodges said. Pastor Chris said this, live for heaven, stand for truth, preach the gospel, and prepare to meet Jesus. That's what we should do. We should plan like Jesus isn't coming back for another hundred years, but we should live like he's coming back today. Now, I'm not against planning. You should plan. Now, having a, a little stored up for tomorrow and for, for the, the future is a good thing, whether it be money or food or whatever. But if, if, if you're one of these that you got to go and get 20 years of canned buckets of food and, and put it away, that's a little extreme. <laughs> that's a little much. Prepare for the immediate. Prepare for the, 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 the destruction, the disaster that could happen in our nation or in, in any day. And we may still be here for those kinds of things. Prepare for those. And prepare like Jesus won't come back for 100, but you know what? He could do it today. And so we live ready. We live with expectation. We live with anticipation. And when we do, it changes our testimony. It makes us a different person when we have that kind of anticipation. We also should be waiting. The return of Jesus should comfort us. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you are so doing. There's a song, you may have heard it on the radio recently, Jordan Felice has a song. And the song is simply titled, Jesus is Coming Back. Now I like this song for the approach that it takes because I remember being in youth group as a, as a, a teenager where they brought us in and, and they would tell us all of the tales of the end times and the things really kind of to, I guess in one way prepare us, but also kind of to scare us. And there was this, there was this series, a trilogy of movies called uh, Left Behind. And, and I remember watching this particular one, it was called, there was one that was called Thief in the Night. And Thief in the Night actually kind of went back into years before that, that I had even thought about Jesus, years early in the 70s. And in Thief in the Night, I'll never forget the song that played as the guy in bell bottoms is running across the bridge and the helicopter's taking off and I'm thinking, oh, I need an altar to pray. I don't want to get left. You know, there was this fear that came. And so much of, of teaching and preaching is, is kind of focused on fear. And, and I know that some do save by fear. And I was probably one of those. You know, I, I just wanted some fire insurance. I just didn't want to get left behind. But later on, the Lord started activating in my heart and realizing that this is not something as a believer in Jesus to fear. This is something to be ready for. And Jordan Fleece wrote this song. And I want to read a couple of the verses here. It says, have you ever thought that the world has kind of lost its way? Crazy as it seems, yes, it's going to be okay. It doesn't scare me. It's temporary. There's something better. We got forever and it won't be long because we know our help is on the way. So keep your head up. Jesus is coming back. And when the world gets complicated, we're going to keep on celebrating because we know Jesus is coming back. Are you ready? People, get ready. Yes, get ready. Oh, he's coming back. Jesus is coming back. Someone say, amen, Jesus is coming back. So we should be waiting 
with anticipation. And it should bring comfort to us. It shouldn't be some fearful thing. But we should also, lastly, be working. And this is important. This may be the most important point of the entire message today. Is that Jesus' return should focus us, like laser beam focus, on the relationships around us. First Peter 4 and 8 says this, Above all things having fervent love for one another. I want you to see how many times he says one another. This is relational. Having fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling as each one has received a gift. Minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You see, your life as a Christ follower should be a display of what it looks like to walk with Jesus in this time. What time is it? You have this time. You have this day. Use this moment to establish a relationship, to encourage someone. Do you leave things better than the way you found them? Do you encourage or do you discourage? Do you build up or do you tear down? Do you complain or do you problem solve? The return of Jesus focuses us on working with those relationships around us, those people around us, some of which may not be ready. And so how is our witness? How is our witness to this world? Do people know God better because of you or are they repelled because of our lives? I pray to God that they would come to know him because of our lives, that they would watch our walk and know our witness, that they would see our heart And that as we encourage them, that we get as many people ready into the ark of safety as possible. For no man knows the hour, no man knows the day. Pastor, are we living in the last days? You're living in your last days. Your neighbors are living in their last days. Your family members are living in their last days. Holly and I were just talking about it yesterday. Six deaths in the last seven days either connected here or to our close circle. Some of those were already ill and knew that they were just given a short time yet to live. Others didn't even realize. But this life is temporary. Eternity is forever. Are you ready? Because here's what it's gonna look like when Jesus finally returns in his fullness. The apostle John, Revelation 21 says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be their God. I love this part. For every person who's ever lost a loved one too soon. For every person who has suffered tragedy, trial, or setback in this life, this is for you. Look what you have to anticipate. Verse four, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these things are faithful and true. Notice he didn't say, I make all new things. He said, I make all things new. That broken will be made new. That lost will be found. 
that heartache will be healed. Those tears of sorrow, those years of agony will be made new. God will settle the score. Are you ready? Are you ready? With heads bowed and no one looking around, this between you and God, how is it with your soul today? Have you accepted the greatest gift, the gift that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe on him would not perish but have everlasting life? Have you received the gift of eternal life from Christ Jesus? Have you made him your Lord? If you haven't, today is your day. This is your moment. Maybe you just need to update things with God. Maybe you just need to kind of update your relationship with him. You can do it today through a prayer. Let's pray together. Pray it like this. Dear God, I come to you today just like I am. I'm broken. I'm wounded. I'm messed up. But I repent of my sin. I come to you today with faith, believing that what you said you will do. I commit my life to you, Jesus, and I will serve you as you show me how. Amen. Listen, if you prayed that prayer, we believe you're born again. And we have some resources that we would love to give to you. We have some ways that you can connect with a local growth group. And the next step of faith is to be baptized. We would love to celebrate you coming into the family of God by identifying with the family of God through baptism and saying that I now belong to a new family, to the family of God. And I'm ready. When Jesus returns, I'm ready. Somebody say, I'm gonna be ready because Jesus is coming again.